0: Drama on One Sundays at 8 p.m. rta.ia forward slash
1: Drama on One.
2: Drama on One. Joyce, in all things, was too well mannered to mimic people, but he would leap the juice and mimic the common vernacular. And I think his musical ear uh, assisted him in that respect. He was definitely interested in uh, Elizabethan and Jacobean music. And I don't know whether you call <laughs> the sound that we know is when McCarthy took the floor of the tennis squatty, whether we call that a Dublin ballad, but he's mm. certainly used to sing. Uh,
0: From the RTE archives, that was Con Curran, who first met Joyce as a classmate in UCD in 1899, talking about the songs that his friend loved and about his keen musical ear. Like his father, Joyce was an accomplished singer, and he had a vast knowledge of music, a knowledge which he incorporated into all his literary works. In this first programme in the series, Catherine O'Callaghan is here with me to explore the musical aspects of Joyce the Man and Joyce the Writer. Catherine, you you yourself are a musician. You're, I know, a tremendous piano player.
1: Well, I studied music um, from the age of eight to 22 in the Academy, the Royal Irish Academy here in Dublin. And I always saw that as something very separate from my interest in reading. So it was wonderful to be able to move back into um, the field of Joyce and music, which brought together these two interests of mine.
0: Yeah, and they would have been both interests of the young Joyce too. Uh, many people think he, he had a kind of fantasy, didn't he, of, of uh, being a performer, of touring the um, watering holes at the south of England and maybe even the beaches, singing to an Elizabethan Lute.
1: That's right. I think uh, Joyce's idea of himself as a musician uh, carried on through his life and is there in the texts themselves. Other writers may have seen words and music as being in conflict. For Joyce, I think language always wins, but music is always there underneath it, bubbling along under the surface. I
0: suppose music lasts the full 15 rounds before it goes (laughs) under. Um, I've heard it said by some people that, you know, um, that great line in Ulysses, tenors get women by the score that maybe Joyce's interest in a singing career early on was to do with, you know, a shy, lonely man wanting to meet a woman and perhaps hoping that was how it would happen.
1: (laughs) Well, I I suppose he was successful in in, in the woman that he he did uh, um, end up with. And it is always said that she would say, you know, it's a pity he didn't stick with the music in terms of actually uh, making a living as opposed to sort of scrounging along from one patron to the next as as they ended up doing. Um, But yes, I think he saw it as something very romantic. I mean, his interest in music, they're, they're so sentimental in some ways. It's so much part of his, his father's love of music, and, um, and, and, and perhaps he sees himself as, as, as following on from his father in that way.
0: Choice uh, did apparently sing, didn't he, down by the Sally Gardens? for uh, Nora at the ancient concert rooms and she was quite impressed
1: uh, Apparently she was um, That seems to have been a song that uh, that he, he, he loved very much
0: John Feely playing the Sally Gardens on Joyce's very own guitar and we've both been listening to it in the Tower just a few weeks back I think that guitar which is not only very small but very old comes from the 1840s And the pegs on it are more like violin pegs than like modern guitar pegs.
1: That's right. And um, Fran O'Rourke was actually the person who was involved in restoring it recently. And and he mentioned that actually it it goes out of tune very quickly um, because of those pegs. So it sort of slips out of tune. Um, But nonetheless, I think a a short performance is possible on it.
0: You've often made the point, and I think it's a good one, that... uh, While we think of Joyce as the great experimenter of language and form in literature, his tastes in music were pretty old fashioned come all ye Irish, weren't they?
1: They were. he has this very eclectic taste in music and it continues throughout his life. We have these anecdotes of um, Parisian friends attending his birthday parties each year and hearing the same old Irish tunes again and again. Some are a little bit more sympathetic towards this than others. Some felt it, this would go on for an hour or more, we would hear. Um, the songs
0: our fathers loved. He would have been a great presenter of the old Waltons programme, wouldn't he? <laughs> he would. The I real Waltons programme. He
1: would have enjoyed that. Um, so we have this mixture of of Thomas Moore. Melodies which come up again and again in his works and uh, he seems to have referenced almost 600 of them in Finnegan's Wake so no matter how experimental his writing gets he keeps referring back again and again to these sentimental pieces of music
2: They walked along Nassau Street and then turned into Kildare Street Not far from the porch of the club, a harpist stood in the roadway, playing to a little ring of listeners. He plucked at the wires heedlessly, glancing quickly from time to time at the face of each newcomer, and from time to time, wearily also, at the sky. His harp, too, heedless that her coverings had fallen about her knees, seemed weary alike of the eyes of strangers and of her master's hands. One hand played in the bass the melody of Silent Omoil, while the other hand careered in the treble. After each group of notes, the notes of the air sounded deep and full.
1: What Moore was dealing with was was music that had already been translated to some extent because if we go back to the end of the 18th century and the the Belfast Harp Festival, this attempt to finally capture the music of Ireland that was in danger of being lost, but once that music got written down, of course, it had to take on a very different form. This was an oral tradition that had to be shoehorned in some way into the written form that existed at the time. So even when Moore is taking on this this music, it is a sort of adulterated version of mm. of what may have been there originally. And we know from Joyce's continual referral to to characters as a sort of bardic figures that he was fascinated with this idea of going back to the idea of, of the poet as a sort of musician poet combination that that existed in the past. That the, the, the writer wasn't someone who simply worked on the page, but was somebody who thought in sound, who was um, involved in an oral and ongoing tradition.
0: And it's interesting, too, isn't it, that, um, you know, we often think of Yeats and Joyce as being conventionally opposed, Yeats being traditional, Joyce more experimental. But they had this in common, didn't they?
1: They did. They shared this idea that behind the language, there is a rhythm that is there in the in the creator, in the in the author themselves that needs to be conveyed in some way. Now, we're more used to that idea in poetry. Um, We, you know, we're more used to the idea of listening to a poet recite their own words so that we can hear the original rhythm that they had. And we think about that less when it comes to prose, to to, to short stories or um, novels. And yet Joyce is always pushing us towards that. He's always asking us to listen to the text, to think about, you know, how did this sound before it was written down on the page? And is that what the, the reader should be trying to recreate in their own mind? Is it some sort of oral tradition? simply coming to us through the medium of the page. Um, being Joyce, this always gets complicated because, of course, he then puts lots of puns for us on the page that we cannot hear um, and are only visible to us when we look at the page. So it's never as simple as, as, as Joyce simply thinking, if only I could read this all out. And, and yet he encourages the, 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 the reader. always. He always said, you know, if you don't understand my works, uh, read them aloud. Well, you know, or don't you, Kenneth, or haven't I told you, every telling has a tailing, and that's
0: the he and the she of it. Look, look, the dusk is growing. My branches lofty are taking root, and my cold chair's gone ashly. Beeloo, beeloo. What age is that? It soon is late. Tis endless now since I ere one last saw Waterhouse's clock. They took it asunder, I heard them say. When will they reassemble it? Oh, my back, my back, my back! I'd want to go to Aixley Pains. Ping, pang. There's the bell for sex at Et concepta send the spray. Pang. Ring out the clothes, ring in the dew. God avari vert the showers and grant thy grace. Amen. The reading from Finnegan's Wake, The Washerwoman in Anna Livia Plura Bella, is of course a gem because it's one of the few instances we have of Joyce doing autobop Bop on one of his own bits. It doesn't sound too Dublin, though, does it? It sounds a bit, as uh, Barry McGovern said recently, more Corkonian. Or is it a kind of Irish generic voice for microphones in the early days of recording?
1: I think it's a bit of both. It does sound a little bit like, you know, his father's Cork accent, perhaps. It doesn't sound like a Dublin accent as we'd recognise it today. And we... We aren't sure because we don't have a, um, a recording of Joyce, simply speaking. So mm. we only have these two recordings of the Anna Olivia Pluribel chapter and a section from the Aeolus chapter of Ulysses. And in both cases, um, he has this accent which has been described as him having a brogue in it. It does seem as though he's putting on a bit of an accent. In the Finnegan's Wake recording, he's trying to evoke two washerwomen. And it, it really is so wonderful to listen to it, to the rhythm of it. You can feel that Joyce conceived of this as a whole, that he has um, moments in it where there's, there are wonderful crescendos and then at the end there's this beautiful diminuendo towards the end and he paces it so beautifully over the last minute that it really is as though he is performing a piece of music for us.
0: Part of the importance of your work, of course, Catherine, is many previous brilliant scholars identified musical allusions in Joyce. They found phrases from famous songs and so on. But you went in, in a way, into the deeper structures, for instance, the whole idea of call and response, which, of course, this would be an example of, the the washerwomen in Finnegan's Wake. You've traced right back through all the other texts as well.
1: That's right. Um, I find this to be one of the most interesting motifs in in Joyce, the idea of a call which is sent out and a return, a voice which calls back. It's a very musical concept. It really is the way music is set up. Of course, it's also the way communication and language um, begins. And in Finnegan's Wake, he goes right back to sort of cavemen throwing out a phrase at each other. And it's the way a baby learns to speak, where we repeat back what they have said. If we take the opening of Ulysses, the, the Telemachus episode which is set out at the tower in, in Sandy Cove, it opens up with um, calls from Buck Mulligan uh, to Stephen Daedalus and back. Calls coming from the sea which are unanswered, whistles that come. So Joyce is setting up a sort of soundscape around the tower and around the characters.
2: A voice within the tower called loudly. Are you up there Mulligan? I'm coming. Mulligan answered, he turned towards Stephen and said, "Look at the sea. What does it care about offenses? Chuck Loyola Kinch and come on down. the Saassanachgh wants his morning rashes
1: and then as the episode develops, we get more of a sense of the different sense of a call,
2: hmm. whether
1: it is the call to to a religious order or to 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 the artistic life to be to be called or to the when, when
0: Stephen sees the 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 bird girl wading up to her thighs in the water in Dollyer, in Dolly Mount, and says, heavenly God, he would create. And he immediately starts running in the opposite direction, back towards the sandhills, which my father used to joke was the Irish version of an orgy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, he, he, that is an example of him rejecting one call, the call of... His developing sexuality, if you like, and instead returning to another call, which is this artistic life, um, which is is the call he finally responds to. And it's right back to the who goes with Fergus idea um, of Yeats's poem of this this call um, from the forest, if you like, to the wandering bar to come and become a wandering bar to give up worldly goods, and and to go off on this life, whether it is around the south of England with one's loot, um, or whether it is off into exile um, through the cities of Europe to write about one's own city.
2: His head vanished, but the drone of his descending voice boomed out of the stairhead. And no more turn aside and brood upon love's bitter mystery, for Fergus rules the brazen cars. Wood shadows floated silently by through the morning peace from the stairhead seaward where he gazed. Inshore and farther out, the mirror of water whitened, spurned by light shod hurrying feet. White breast of the dim sea, the twining stresses, two by two, a hand plucking the harp strings, merging their twining chords. Wave white wedded words shimmering on the dim tide.
1: Later, then, in in the Sirens episode, I think we have a stronger sense of um, calls as being a very musical idea that you have a call from afar, which is 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 drawing us. It's setting up a distance uh, which must be reconciled. Stephen Dedalus talks about this as a as a very musical idea. He says it's it's as though you're going off on the scale, you're moving up the scale, and when you get to the fifth note. You have to return. There's a point of return. Hmm. Um, So one moves a certain distance and then you get drawn back by the call. So this is a sort of um, a a dynamic that Joyce is setting up in his works that one moves away and eventually keeps returning home. And it's what is happening really in Ulysses that we have Leopold Bloom setting off on his odyssey, but he's always going to have this sense of, of returning home. And the call that's happening through the day is probably his wife Molly Bloom lying in her bed and she is the sort of real siren figure of the book to some extent she's calling him back all of the time Um, these calls go out through through the the, the book we have um, even the idea of the tuning fork that is hit on the piano in the sirens bar, which is in, in, at four o'clock, it's in the very centre of the book and the day, um, a tuning fork is hit and it seems to send out this call throughout the city of Dublin. And one of the things it brings back in is the blind piano tuner who left it there and he starts tapping his way back across the city.
2: By the by, there's a tuning fork in there on the tap, 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 tap. The wife is a fine voice. I had, what? Lidwell asked, oh, that must be the tuner, Lydia said to Simon Lionel, first I saw, forgot it when he was here. Blind he was, she told George Lidwell, second I saw, and played so exquisitely, treat to hear.
1: It's It's a very simple idea in one way, and yet Joyce is really experimenting with language at this stage, and instead of telling us, here comes the blind piano tuner back through the city. We just hear a tap every a so tap, often, tap, 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 tap which yeah. increases a sort of crescendo effect as he gets closer and closer to the Ormond bar to collect the the, the, the tuning fork again.
0: Um, it's so interesting, too, that Bloom thinks of helping the, the blind stripling. And this becomes a kind of forecasting image of the Bloom who will rescue the partially cited Stephen Daedalus from the Wilds of the Madame and the brothel in Nighttown. So, yeah, all these calls and responses are intimately linked in the end to the plot. This sirens chapter you've been talking mm-hmm. about is, of course, filled with what I think Joyce once called the oceanic feeling that goes with music. And again, you've mm-hmm. got that idea of the unconscious, the water. Um, and Bloom, of course, hears a lot of the songs while not actually seeing the singers. Isn't that right? Yeah. They're in the next room in the Ormond Hotel doing the songs Um, you have a very different reading of that sirens chapter from most of the scholars from any I think who've preceded you could you tell us a bit about that isn't isn't your reading of the opening pages really quite different
1: it is. The, the opening pages of the Sirens episode are a series of little fragments. There are, I think, 65 little fragments. They, they, they're not recognisably sentences in any way we would have um, considered a, a, a chapter to begin before that. So we start to stumble over them and wonder, what are these little fragments?
2: Bronze by gold heard the hoof irons steely ringing. Imprecisant. Chips picking chips off rocky thumbnail. Chips. Horrid. And gold flushed more. A husky five-note blue. Blue. Blue bloom is on the...
1: What happens next is that the chapter begins again with the same words, and now we have a narrative which is more easily navigable. And how that has been read in the past is that the opening is a sort of overture, um, laying out some of the themes of what is to come. I I took another look at this because I felt that... That is not the way an overture really works in music. We don't sit down to listen to, a, to, to an opera and during the overture think, I have no idea what is going on here. This is in a completely different form from anything else I've encountered before. And it'll probably only become understandable when I hear the entire piece. So I began to wonder whether Joyce was doing something a little bit different with that opening. And one of the things that I think Joyce is interested in is how music moves between what's written on the page and what is performed. Every time we hear a piece of music, it will be slightly different. It's down to the interpretation. It's down to the performance. And I began to wonder how he thought about the idea of taking a piece of text and then performing it in a different way. So I began to wonder whether that was actually what was going on in the sirens episode. So he lays out for us, what will be performed. So it is the written version, if you like, a score of hmm. what is going to be performed. And then the chapter continues with a performance of that. Each of those little fragments is taken, but it is given this performance, which evokes for us the world of Leopold Bloom. It gets across the emotions, the sadness that's there in the text and uh, the, the the loneliness of some of the, the, the characters, all of the, the ideas, the emotions, the, the world of 1904 that comes across to us. That really comes across because how Joyce performs those words. So this chapter, which is all about music, actually brings us back to the idea of how how do we read? How do we convey meaning in in language? How does an author uh, get the world across to us that they have in their mind? And I think Joyce is almost laying it out for us. He's saying, well, look, you can start with these little fragments, but you have to then turn it into an actual performance. It's, it, there is more than just the words, as Bloom himself says in the episodes, words, music. No, it's what's behind. Yeah. So something else that he's trying to, 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 to access there. And,
0: and the interesting thing is that Bloom is utterly caught up in the emotion of the music for a certain time and then suddenly begins to question it, you know, that idea then seems to explain why he leaves before the end. And of course, he completes the orchestration by letting a fart. He plays the tuba, in effect, in the orchestra, in the Ormond. Uh, but, But is this the moment, do you think, when Joyce decided maybe that words were ultimately certain good, that they were better than mere music?
1: I think I think so he he said after he wrote the sirens episode that he had seen through all the tricks of music and there' that you know he didn't want to listen to it anymore that of course isn't true he he went on to to, to attend hundreds of musical events but he um he certainly seems to have felt that he has worked out how music works in some way and in the episode itself the idea of the sirens uh, you know music is, is is something quite dangerous in in the episode it's something that could uh, tempt someone in and as you say you lose your, your to reason anymore because music seems to function in a different way so it can be quite dangerous for ideas like uh, patriotism so it's particularly when the patriotic ballad the crappie boy is being sung in the bar that bloom begins to get a little bit anxious about music he goes along with the, the the romantic music but when it comes to patriotic music and he looks at the other men in the bar you know eyes closed not thinking um he decides that this isn't quite for him. And like Odysseus, um, binding himself to the ship, uh, Bloom puts a little elastic band around his hands, which seems to be a sort of an attempt to to, to keep himself in the physical, I suppose, and decides then to leave the bar before he gets completely caught up in in the patriotic ballad, as the other uh, uh, men have done.
2: I bear no hate against living things
1: But I love
2: my country above the king The crappie boy, our native Doric Aye, do, Ben, Mr Dedalus said Good men and true Do, do, they begged in one
0: And of course the elastic band snaps, doesn't it? Almost like a symbol of the stress on his marriage which of course, the yearning in the songs is reminding him of all that's unachieved, maybe unachievable.
1: Exactly at this point, um, Bloom sees the man who is going to cook old him, Blazes Boylan, who's this uh, you know sort of pantomime character in the book. Um, he sees him leaving the bar, um, his shoes, his his very dandy shoes leaving the bar, and Bloom seems to hear Blazes Boylan moving along the keys. Up O'Connell Street and um, up to Eccles Street, to his wife's uh, um, bedroom, we we seem to hear Blazes Boylan's uh, uh, travels. We hear the carriage jingling, we hear the knock on the door. All of this is probably simply Bloom's imagination. He cannot stop himself hearing and imagining the sound of this journey even as he casts his eyes down and, and stays looking at the at, at the, the um, tablecloth in front of him and doesn't look over at what's happening in the rest of the bar he cannot seem to stop the sound effects, if you like of what's happening at four o'clock um, infiltrating his consciousness
2: When first I saw that
1: formendearing sorrow from me to depart.
0: There's a famous line in the chapter, the word Seopold, which conflates, doesn't it? The name Simon, who's the father of Daedalus, with uh, Leopold Bloom, of course, yeah. and Lionel.
1: Fra- fra- yes, exactly. Lionel, fra- who, who is supposedly singing the aria. This comes at the end of, of Mapari, which is um, the aria from, from Floto's opera Martha. And as this song has been sung, um, Bloom is is in a terrible state he's, he's quite distraught I think inside um, and yet he keeps trying to to, to move himself out of it he, he sort of taps out rhythms or he thinks tee hee 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 and he has all these funny little um, rhythms and patterns to stop himself thinking but the music is so powerful that it is difficult for him to move away and at the end we have this um, high B flat which the tenor holds on the word come and Joyce tries to evoke for us there in a long passage um, the the, the, the movement of the the singer's voice at that point resolving to to me and it's really one of the the examples of Joyce trying to evoke an actual musical performance there in the text and we are supposed to I suppose hear that Martha, Martha I am sighing I am weeping still for thee Martha,
2: chest note Return Come, Its sword. A bird, it held its flight, a swift pure cry, sore silver orb, it leaped serene, speeding, sustained, to come, don't spin it out too long, long breath, he breath, long life, soaring high, high resplendent, aflame, crowned, high in the effulgence symbolistic, high of the ethereal bosom, high of the high vast irradiation everywhere, all soaring, all around, about the all, the endlessnessnessness, to me.
1: And it is so powerful that for Bloom, who is listening, it's as though the singer, the character and the listener all become one and it becomes this word, Saipold. It's a chord-like effect. And of course, that is one of the the, the very challenging things for the writer. It's what Joyce really tries to take on. In music, we can listen to three notes at once, which make up a chord. And it's perfectly understandable to us.
0: The simultaneity is possible. The
1: simultaneity is possible, but in, in language, of course, we, we, we need one word after another. And it is really then in Finnegan's Wake that Joyce takes on this challenge that he has set himself there in the Sirens episode of, can I um, evoke simultaneity? Can I evoke the, the musical quality of simultaneity in language? Can I present new words, uh, portmanteau words, as he called them, which will have multiple meanings at once and the reader will somehow somehow uh, respond to all of these meanings at once, the way they do with music. Now, this may well be where the limits of language are in terms of its movement towards music. And one of the things he does throughout the book is he has these hundred letter words called thunder words. And the first one in particular is very interesting. It is the words for thunder in as many different languages as he could come up with.
0: Having said all that, do you get frustrated then when on Bloomsday every year you hear The Lass of Ockram or I Dreamt I Dwelt in Marble Halls or The Croppy Boy? You know, those wonderful long-playing records of Joyceian music seem in a way to lose out on some of this complication, don't they?
1: I think so. I mean, I think when when people ask me about Joyce in music, they tend to think I will talk about, um, you know, these pieces. And and actually, I have a a soft spot for The Last of Ockham myself.
0: Why? Why have you that?
1: (laughs) Well, I think I I, I think it's a very beautiful piece. And I think um, that the moment it occurs in the dead, It it is such a beautiful idea of, of Greta Conroy standing at the top of the stairs, hearing this little fragment of a piece of music and it, you know, really throwing her back to her childhood.
2: The song seemed to be in the old Irish tonality and the singer seemed uncertain both of his words and of his voice. The voice, made plaintive by distance and by the singer's hoarseness, faintly illuminated the cadence of the air with words expressing grief. Oh, the rain falls on my heavy locks, and the dew wets my skin. My babe lies cold. Oh, exclaimed Mary Jane, it's Bartell Darcy singing, and he wouldn't sing all the night. Oh, i will get him to sing a song before he goes. Oh, do, Mary Jane, said Aunt Kate. Mary Jane brushed past the others and ran to the staircase. But before she reached it, the singing stopped and the piano was closed abruptly.
0: Maybe we, in conclusion then, would both agree that perhaps an ideal, if ultimately impossible way of reading Joyce would be perhaps to lie on a floor and look at the text projected onto the ceiling while listening to recordings like the RTE recording of the Ulysses from 1982.
1: And yet, even then, we will see a conflict between what we are seeing and what we are hearing because there's always so much more in what is written on the page.
0: Catherine O'Callaghan, thank you so much for all your work on this and for sharing your thoughts today. Thank you, Declan. James Joyce and to me was presented by Declan Kybird and the producer was Bernadette Comerford. The readings from Joyce's works were by Barry McGovern.